Russia plays war games in the east to fight the west. British troops arrive in the Caribbean for Operation Rumen and what's for sale at London's arms fair. What you can see here is a much bigger turret, much more comfortable for the soldier, a lot easier to find. It's an app just like any other app on the phone. You select it, you dial a number or you select a contact, you send a message, it's just very straightforward. NATO is billing Zapad as one of Russia's most significant military exercises in years. Its imaginary task is to put down an internal revolution in Belarus backed by America. I'm joined by General Sir Richard Shireff, former Deputy Supreme Allied Commander Europe, the writer on Russian affairs, Mary Dijewski, and our defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Hello to all of you. Sir Richard, Zapad has been an annual exercise for decades. What's different this time? I'm not sure it has been an annual exercise. I think the last I've had was 2013 in the West. Sorry, but, I should say uh, a, reg- a regular yeah, exercise. I think a regular exercise. Um, well, I think this is, uh, you're right, it's a, a regular exercise. It's a five-year exercise. What has changed, of course, is that shortly after Zapad 13, we saw the invasion of Crimea, the invasion of Ukraine, um, and a significant change in relations between NATO, the West, and Russia. Uh, and a recognition that a resurgent Russia um, poses poses a threat. Uh, so we need to be careful. We need to watch what's going on very carefully. We need to take account of it. I mean, it is absolutely right that Russia, like any any country, should exercise its military. Um, but we should take nothing for granted in our relations with Russia. Mm. NATO uses Zapad to analyse Russian capabilities and you mentioned that the, the, the worries um, a couple of times the Russians have used it as the beginning of territorial invasion, Crimea, Georgia, for example. What are we seeing exactly this time from the Russians? Well, if you go back to 20... I mean, we'll wait and see, except I mean, suffice it to say that we, we, we expect to see significant numbers of Russian military deployed and I think we should take note of the fact that Russia is capable of really moving, moving in significant numbers in a way which, frankly, NATO would find difficult. I mean, Russians routinely swing divisions, tank armies, airborne divisions, etc., around, and, and this is an opportunity to see how they do that. It's also an opportunity for NATO to hold a mirror up to itself, uh, to look at its own capabilities very carefully, uh, understand the gaps and ensure that it puts in place the necessary measures to, to make sure NATO is a, 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 an effective defensive alliance based on deterrence. You're saying that NATO should hold a mirror up to itself. What do you think it should learn then? Well, I think it, it, should, it should look very carefully at Russian military capabilities and ensure that NATO itself has the means required to deter any potential threat to NATO territory, airspace or sea lines of communication. Mary Dijewski, what do you think Russia is trying to achieve here? Have they talked it up? Um, I think we've been talking it up, frankly. I don't think it's the Russians who've been talking it up. Um, I've actually been amazed um, at the attention that um, Western commentators have paid to this Zapad exercise. As you made the point, it has been a regular feature. Um, as Sir Richard said, you know, not every year. And the last one was indeed in 2013. Um, but the idea has been put around that um, the Russian estimate of 12,000 taking part is... Um, 
almost 90% underestimate that it could be 100,000 taking part and um, that um, look at 2013 and as Richard says um, it looked like a precursor to um, as he said the invasion of Crimea and eastern Ukraine I mean Russia certainly wouldn't talk about any um, invasion of eastern Ukraine nor indeed um, in their terms of Crimea Um, And I think it's also um, instructive in a way that while we have been talking up um, this year's Zapad exercise, um, we've been almost silent. I mean, the same Western commentators have been almost silent about the very big-scale exercises, um, one currently being billed by by NATO as being, um, I think, led or centred on, um, as they say, quote, non-aligned Sweden, even though an awful lot of um, NATO countries are taking part in it currently. Um, There was a Black Sea exercise um, with NATO in July, um, and these have passed without any sort of comment at all. And I think it's interesting, when you look at the map, um, the sort of broadest map that the Russians have produced for their Zapad exercise, um, it looks looks uncannily like um, a mirror image of the maps that they produce to show what, in their view, has been NATO's advancement um, into the countries of Central and Eastern Europe. Mm. Um, so I think, you know, there's another side to this, which um, we on the Western side are really not talking about. In, in that light, Christopher Lee, when you hear the Defence Secretary saying Zapad is provocative and intimidating, what do you think? I think he's the Defence Secretary. <laughs> saying uh, what he has to say then. <laughs> sort of, yeah. Um, put it in some context, some context. Go back to 1975 and the Helsinki process. And the different baskets were of, of the process which were to help people and also to establish the security um, conundrum, which was across what was then a very much divided Europe. There you have the origins of, for example, if you hold a big exercise as telling the other side with, uh, you know, with some detail of what you're going to be doing. That that's, gives a sort of balance and a security balance. You then have something else which is going on. Um, and I think it's the something then we go to 1991, 92, when the uh, Western uh, countries within NATO said to Russia, we're now at some sort of peace. What we promise we won't do is go into your near abroad, your countries that we called the Warsaw Pact, and we won't take them over, we won't interfere, and we won't come right up to your borders. Now, if you happen to be whoever in the in the Kremlin, you'll say, well, that's exactly what you have done. Mm-hmm. Now, put that together as, as, as the, if, if you like, the feeling of security Add it to what else is going on in the rest of the world. You know, people scratching their heads in Brussels about what the Russians are doing in Syria, etc. Uh, what's going on, for example, to a NATO, NATO, NATO country, an important NATO country, Turkey, this week with the announcement it's buying Russian missiles, for example. And that's why you get the opportunity to feed to hungry mouths on the pages of every newspaper mm. uh, why Zapad is important. General Sir Richard Sheriff, do you think it matters how many troops are taking part and whether Russia is absolutely transparent about those numbers? Uh, yes, it does. Uh, let me just pick up a couple of points from your last uh, correspondent. Uh, Zapad 13 was both intimidatory and it was provocative. 
regular overflights, regular incursions into Baltic states' military airspace, uh, and an anti- a so-called anti-terrorist exercise, which involved an amphibious landing of some tens of thousands, uh, on which could easily have been a forerunner to a, an attack on the Baltic states. So it was very provocative, and it was very intimidatory. Great if the, if the next one is not, but the Defence Secretary is absolutely right to, to, to describe it this way. Um, the second point I'd just pick up is the promise, the so-called business of the promise not to, quote, enter Russia near abroad. Countries of, like Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania, together with the former Warsaw Pact countries such as Poland, Hungary, etc., have been admitted into NATO because they more than met the criteria for entry into that alliance, that defensive alliance. And indeed, no NATO troops have been in those countries, less the odd uh, map exercise. There has been no so-called advance to the east from NATO up until uh, the recent deployment of the forward enhanced, the enhanced forward presence, which is a very, very minimalist, um, a minimalist uh, uh, deployment. Some uh, three battalion groups, which is tiny in comparison to the recent deployment of really significant Russian numbers on the Baltic states, on the, on the boundaries of the Baltic states. Uh, so let's just get that one into perspective. As far as the, the question you ask about the numbers of troops, yes, of course it matters. Um, and, and I think what it will demonstrate is Russia's readiness, its willingness, and, it, and the potential threat it could cause to NATO. And therefore, NATO should be, and I am sure will be, sitting up and taking a very close notice of what's going on. Mary Dijewski, what do you think, if anything, will be the consequences of this exercise? Well, I think obviously we've got to wait and see. I mean, my betting um, would be that um, one of the consequences would be that Russia wants to show that it can conduct um, an exercise that will show its troops to be competent, um, to have been modernized to a large degree since the last and the previous Zappert um, exercises. Um, but also, I sort of wonder whether it doesn't want to show at the same time, and we'll see this, obviously, um, whether this is true, um, that it is prepared to abide by the rules um, on transparency and on um, keeping within its borders in holding these exercises. And to that extent, um, it will be both um, a demonstration of strength, yes, but also a demonstration that it accepts a sort of rules-based system. Um, and I think it's also, um, as, a, as a sort of sideline to this, and this is really going out on a very big limb, um, I also wonder whether at a time when Russia appears to be um, on the gradually winning side in Syria, um, whether it's not prepared to start making some concessions on eastern Ukraine. We've heard um, a suggestion that it might be ready to accept um, a UN, um, UN peacekeepers in eastern Ukraine, which would be a departure from Russia's position hitherto. Mm. Um, and it might be that in, as it were, staging um, an exhibition of its military strength, that's a precursor to, allow, to giving way on certain other, what it might see as smaller things for mm. the sake of a better relationship with the West. Mary, it's a very interesting thought. If and when you're proven right, we'll have you back on again, please. That's uh, Mary Dijewski and General Sir Richard Shearer. Thank you for your time today. Sit with Kate Shubert. 
still to come. Are you sitting comfortably? We've got to make sure they can deal with a Bashful mission up to 48 hours. You want to make sure they're comfortable because if you're thinking about, ow, my foot hurts, you're not concentrating as much on the fact that, oh, hang on, someone's shooting me. Improvements inside the Warrior Armoured Vehicle and more from the world's biggest military fair. Britain's armed forces are restoring vital services to the British overseas territories devastated by Hurricane Irma. By this weekend, there will be 1,200 UK troops out there for what's being called Operation Rumen. Christopher Lee, can you tell us who is where? Well, the important thing, we've got, there are two ships. That's the first thing. Uh, and we have to remember, uh, first and foremost again, that we see film of aircraft flying into short runways, etc., and it looks good. You can't carry much, actually, in an aeroplane. It's quite remarkable how little you can carry without having to have a constant stream going in there. Ships are, are, are vital. They can do three things particularly. They can carry a lot of gear. They can carry... Uh, they can carry helicopters, which is the most important bit of, of flying that you can have in, in the islands. The other thing they can do, both those ships can actually wire up a local town to their main generators and pump electricity through towns and keep it going for as long as the generators keep going. And so they create a, a power supply, which is, which is very important. So Mounts Bay, for example... Um, it has the importance here of already being there. It was close in. It, it had limited supplies, but it had enough supplies of what, mm. it, what it had anyway, uh, or what it had for itself. Uh, went into Anguilla, uh, which was important. Then it moved uh, and secured or made an emergency operations centre. That again was important. Um, and then started moving around British Virgin Islands, the American Virgin Islands, etc., and then coming back to Ang Ang Anguilla. Mm -hmm. uh, the other, the, 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 biggest, the biggest vessel, the most important vessel, not there yet. HMS Ocean. Ocean, mm. it, it sounds as if somebody didn't sit down in the MOD and say, might we want to have to book that ship somewhere close with all mm. that weather going on? But I'd add one other thing. When the Anguillans were saying, look, why didn't, for example, uh, Mounts Baker's come in and, and, and do it all at once when we desperately need them on day one? Mm. Uh, I don't know if anybody's ever done it, but you try and bring a, a ship, a, a 17,000 tonne ship alongside in, during a hurricane. Yeah, well, as you alluded there, there was some criticism about the British military response. Let's listen now to former Foreign Office Minister Sir Henry Bellingham, who told the Commons Britain should have a permanent Royal Navy base in the Caribbean. If a French and Dutch can do it, and they both incidentally had two warships on standby before the hurricane, then surely we should do that, and it would send a really strong signal of solidarity to the OTs. So, Christopher, a Royal Navy base in the Caribbean? Yeah, that's one thing about Henry Billingham's point about the, the, the French with two ships. They're actually on exercise. Hmm. And, and the Royal Navy actually had, or the RFA, had Mounts Bay there as well. Um, the, the idea of a naval base, forget it. It's, it's too much of a, a problem. You can't just put together another Portsmouth or whatever. What you can do, and I've seen it done... Uh, for an exercise for a long period, which is to do with uh, uh, drugs, looking for uh, counter drug operations as well. You go into Antigua, you go to either Nelson's Harbour or, or St. John's, which they've done. Mm. You take over on a temporary basis one of the cruise liner uh, wharfs. You put one officer and two ratings there. And that is your naval base, because all you do, all you need is the communications operations. And every time Mounts mm. Bay or whoever's in the area 
they come alongside. Everybody's happy. Now there's a thought. Now the world's biggest arms fair, DSEI, is underway at London's Excel Centre. All the big movers and shakers in the defence industry are there, including military top brass. Grace Prasco caught up with the first Sea Lord Admiral, Sir Philip Jones. Well, I'm back at DSCI today, two years after my predecessor made a very bold step into the technological future of the Royal Navy. And uh, I wanted to show that we are carrying on with the momentum of that. So today we are announcing a number of steps. Firstly, that we're making um, a bold, innovative approach to how we're going to do mine countermeasures and hydrography in the future, stepping forward towards an unmanned capability with a, a series of unmanned vehicles that we will be able to deliver all of our outputs in that area um, using that kind of technology. And as a first step, we're going to try and do all of those outputs in the, in the next two years uh, we're going to be ready to do them in UK waters with unmanned capability and then we'll look to do it elsewhere in the world beyond that. So um, that's one key announcement. The second one is we're sending uh, one of our frigates to sea this autumn with an open architecture system uh, that will enable it to incorporate much more rapidly developments in technology that will help the ship manage data and fight. We have the, the challenge of um, a difficult, less stable world that we're operating in, ever more tasks for the Navy to fulfil. Um, and yet we are constrained in our ability to recruit and retain the manpower that we need to fulfil all those tasks uh, and also make the budget allocated to the Navy work in all the ways we need to do. So we've got to be agile and innovative. We've got to think how we can free up spend in some of our traditional systems uh, in order to do things more effectively using less money and using less people in the future. And DSEI is a great place to set out our stall, as I've just tried to do, um, to say what our journey is, how we need defence industry to work with us and galvanise some of the great thinking that's going on in the maritime sector um, here at the exhibition. And you called the Royal Navy the leader of innovation within UK armed forces. Why and how? Well, I don't make that claim lightly, um, but I think uh, rising, uh, uh, picking up particularly on some of the themes that we've taken forward in the last two years of running exercise unmanned warrior and then exercise information warrior bolted onto our joint warrior series off Scotland. We, we've taken the initiative of taking some of these technologies uh, into the operational space, showing how we can integrate them with our existing capability and learn the lessons from them rapidly. And I think particularly the, the pace of change and the direction of travel over the last couple of years has perhaps really marked out the Royal Navy as the service that's grappling with these changes uh, in a way that it hasn't done before. So I think, uh, I think we've earned that accolade. That was Admiral Sir Philip Jones. Uh, Christopher, a bit of a boast from the first Sea Lord at the end there. That's what you have first Sea Lords for. I hmm. tell you, he, he's underestimating uh, the power of the Navy in this. You know the first computers were in the Royal Navy? Underestimating? He didn't sound like he was underestimating, really. He did to me. I mean, really? the Royal Navy is much better than that. Hmm. But we had the first computers in the Royal Navy, and they were used for guns, and they could computer fire. And this was in the late 19th century. They, we'd worked out a, a mechanical computer. The great advantages that the Navy's proved, and his job, not last job, but the one before that, I think, where he started it himself. If you take, let's say, counter-IT, uh, uh, cyber attacks, you can operate in a group of ships, in a battle group of ships, with quite small equipment. Um, you put it into the army, 
It's a much complex, more complex operation. Where is the army? Where's the bit you're trying to defend? What are you trying to defend? Who takes command and control of the whole thing? And so the Navy has always had this advantage of being able to do something. You know, you, you fire guns and you fire missiles and you defend yourself. That's basically what the Navy does. And so you can, you can develop quite advanced systems and say, OK, bring it along, bolt it on and see how we get on with this. And that's what he has been very, very clever, clever at doing. And I think he's improved the way that not just the Navy has done it, but he's improved it at a time when, for example, uh, counter cyber attacks, the, the gear for that is starting to come online. And if you look in a small business, for example, it does the same thing. You can take quite often the equipment that you find there and you can put it in a ship mm. and you can operate it in a, in a, small, in a, in a small flotilla. How, how important is it to get the balance right of selling British-made equipment to pay for British procurement? It's a very difficult calculation because it involves politics and it also involves, uh, I suppose, quite a lot of emotions. For example, if you... Let's take aeroplanes. You build, say, a typhoon or... Um, and you want it in you want a couple of squadrons if you want three squadrons you probably got to get the salesmen out there and sell them to let's say the saudi arabians or somebody in order that you can pay for the ones that you want and that's how it works about a third of the armed forces is is partly financed by overseas sales you run into problems immediately because you say, for example, as we've got at the moment a debate going on, should we sell gear to the Saudi Arabians mm. when they're using it against Yemen in a, in a, in a war we disagree with? And mm. that's, a, that's a decision for the politicians. Well, among the exhibits this week is a new version of the Warrior Armoured Vehicle, which has been made slightly more comfortable for the soldiers inside. Richard Hutchinson has had a tour from Lockheed Martin's Philippa Tredgett, a human factors design engineer. We're currently in the turret of the Warrior CSP vehicle. It's going to be Warrior 2, effectively. So what you can see here is a much bigger turret, much more comfortable for the soldier, a lot easier to fight. Looking around this, we've got a stabilised CT-40 in front of us, which allows us to fire on the move, and that's fed by an ammunition handling system, which allows you to put all the ammunition in before you're trying to fire. You're not worrying about faffing about with different weapon types. It's just load it up and when it's all loaded you hit go you pick your ammunition it goes job done beyond that we've got some screens in front of us you can see and that allows you to look through all the different cameras there's six cameras around the vehicle and that allows you to see all the way around see what's happening around you we also now have screens in the driver's section and in the section compartment at the back so that you can brief the soldiers before they're getting out so they can see what's going on. They've got that situational awareness before they're dumped out the back door. They know what's happening now. It's a vehicle that anyone who's been to Afghanistan during Operation Herrick will be very familiar with, but in a slightly different colour and with bar armour down the side. This one is definitely back to green. Absolutely, definitely green. Well, they're very white inside much brighter in here now you've got a lot better vision of what's actually happening and i understand that the inside is something that uh, is directly affected by your job it's down to ergonomics that's absolutely right so i deal with the panels i also deal with a lot of the adjustability so the hand controllers adjust you can stow them away to help with catavat you can bring them towards you to make sure you can reach them the footplate adjusts the seat adjusts it's really making sure that the soldier can get comfortable get in that optimal position so you're not getting cramp after a few hours. 
because you can spend a long time in these vehicles, can't you, if you're on operations? Well, absolutely. We've got to make sure they can deal with a battlefield mission up to 48 hours. You want to make sure they're comfortable because if you're thinking about, ow, my foot hurts, you're not concentrating as much on the fact that, oh, hang on, someone's shooting me. Bit of an issue. With a space that is this small, how can you change the ergonomics? How can you change the layout of it? If, say the, the driver decides, actually, this is really giving me cramp in my leg. How do you change it? Because there's not a lot of space. You, do, you have to be very careful about that. So we've not got a huge amount of extra room. The uh, leg room you've got is unfortunately defined for us by the legacy hull. Uh, that's not changed but by being able to adjust the height of the footplate, you can adjust your knee angle a bit and that can let you wiggle your feet a bit more. Um, driver's seat is the legacy seat still, so that's all the old capability is still there. We're in the gunner's position at the moment and the driver ahead of us. How does the driver navigate? How do they see where they're going? So the driver's got an embedded image periscope, so they've got a standard periscope but also they can toggle between day and night camera so they've got a much better visibility they've also got the use of the screens in front of them so they can flick between the different cameras around the vehicle they've got a much better awareness of what's happening around them what do the crews think of the new vehicle everyone i've had in here today has told me how much bigger it is they're all very glad to see the air conditioning that's uh, been a real hit today <laughs> um and certainly the fact that the gun is so much further forward you've got a lot more space in front of you you can see the person you're sat next to you can talk to them you can reach things the panels a lot easier to use and it's just all a lot more economic if i can say that it's a lot easier to use how does it feel to sit here and think i helped put this together i helped design this it's pretty awesome i'm not gonna lie um i can look at some of these panels and say that panel is the way it is because I help with that. That's been adjusted because a soldier said to me in a workshop, oh, hang on, I can't read some of that. And now it's angled so that the soldiers can read everything. That's really satisfying. That was Lockheed Martin designer Philippa Tragic talking about the new warrior. But it's not just big kit on display. There are some interesting developments in communications, such as a secure messaging app that's been approved by NATO. It's made by Armacoms, and Mike Howarth spoke to company director David Holman about this safer alternative to WhatsApp. The app was designed because we felt that there was a real need both in the military and in government for secure communications, but uh, on standard devices, so standard smartphones, laptops and tablets. Let's take Ophir, for example, in Afghanistan. The phones have gone away, they've been left at home, they've been locked in a safe. How does this differ and how useful will it be for the end user? It's a very easy app to get access to. It is linked up provisioned, if you like, onto either our cloud system or more probably onto a system that you have yourself. So we allow on-premise solutions to be put in. And it's just very easy to use. It's, it's an app just like any other app on the phone. You select it, you dial a number, or you select a contact, you send a message. It's just very straightforward. How secure is it compared to other social media platforms? That's a great question, a question we get asked quite a lot. You'll find a lot of consumer-orientated uh, apps talk about end-to-end -end security or end-to-end -end encryption. And that's true, they probably are encrypted. But security is not just about encryption, it's about a whole lot more than that. We've done quite a lot to our app to, to make it secure, so much so that it has FIPS approval, it's approved by the UK government to CPA. 
and also it's got NATO approval. And what about the actual specific capabilities of it? Because I understand that you, you can link in with, with other apps, Skype for example. A great question. I mean, one of the things that we were trying to do when we when we set the, uh, the company up and started creating the app is thought, well, wouldn't it be great if everybody was using it? But in reality, we've got to be sensible about this, that people have other technologies already. So particularly, you mentioned Skype for Business there. It's, it's one we see a lot. Organisations have made big investments in that technology for all the right reasons. So what we do with that is we give them the ability to have a secure element to that uh, unified comms capability. And so what we've done is created an interoperability with Skype for Business. We have a demonstration where we can show, for example, a video conference within the Skype environment, which uses our technology. So you have our, our apps coming straight into that and talking to Skype for Business. And really, you would not know what app you were on. It's that good. We are talking future technology here, aren't we? And, and how long are we looking before this could be, could be rolled out? Well, the future for some people is not very far away. You know, we've got some people using it already and they're very happy with it. But everybody has their own idiosyncrasies in how they want to use it. Some people have their own challenges. And some organisations, particularly the military, take their time to evaluate technologies and go through the right process before they actually launch them in theatre, which, by the way, is absolutely the right thing to do, however frustrating it might be for, for app vendors like us. David Holman from Armacoms there. When you're talking about secure messaging approved by NATO, Christopher, not so many um, controversial tweets by the American president at the moment. It's fascinating. Uh He's John Kelly is his new General John Kelly is his new man running the White House. From the day John Kelly moved in, General uh, or President Trump stopped doing the mad dog uh, tweets. Ask why. That's it for this week. We'll be back same time next week. Thanks for listening. Never miss an episode. You can subscribe to this show as a podcast. Just search online for BFBS Sit Rep. From me, Kate Chabot. Bye bye for now. The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.